really was wonderful to come back this morning to uh, to be here with all of you and also to be back in California in the spring. It's spring here before it is spring on the East Coast, and I was there for about three weeks, so beautiful. And I came early this morning because I had a meeting with somebody up the hill in one of the offices up there. And on the way up, we were walking up the hill and looking around at how beautiful it was and thinking about how wonderful it is that we have this place. And uh, all of a sudden, in the road, noticed that there was a heart shape that someone had uh, delineated out a heart with little stones, pebbles. It was clearly a work of art and the shape of a heart. And uh, so we stopped to look at it. And what it was is um, a salamander, a little, a little lizard that had been killed probably by one of the vehicles that had gone up and down. It looked like maybe the back of it had gotten ridden over. And um, so someone had enshrined it in a heart. They'd made a monument, a, a marker for it. And they had taken a twig, and the salamander was curved in kind of an S shape. And they'd found a twig that was an S shape, and they put it on one side of it with a little piece of a, of a flower over it. And they found a flower that was the same shape as the dead salamander and put that on the other side with a little twig over it. So it was really a little artwork celebrating that salamander that probably this morning was alive but isn't now. It was really, we stopped and we looked at it and I, I knew that I wanted to start by telling you about that because I, I really want to talk about caring as a, as a condition of the human heart that I think makes us so special and really is a cause, the real cause of celebration. You know, in, in, um, in part of Buddhist lore is to say that um, a human life is the most fortunate of incarnations, that there are levels of incarnation, and levels less um, evolved than human beings, animal realms and other kinds of less evolved realms, and actually even higher realms, angelic realms and heavenly realms. But it's generally taught that the best possible realm to be in is the human realm. It's a very uh, special realm to get born into. Matter of fact, uh, one of the pieces of lore about it is that it's uh, a very rare birth. And its rarity is uh, expressed this way. It's said that imagine that there's a giant turtle and that giant turtle is swimming around under all seven oceans just one of that giant turtle swimming around uh, under all the oceans of the world and every hundred years that turtle gets to stick its head up through the water and on all those same seven oceans of the world there is one buoy floating you know a round life buoy and uh, every hundred years, the turtle sticks its head up. And the chances of getting born as a human being are as rare as the chances that the turtle, when it sticks its head up that once, will stick it up through that ring. So it's a very rare birth. I think it's meant to mean that we ought to cherish this lifetime and be uh, the best of human beings that we can be. And I think that the best of human beings that we can be, and this is not a mythic kind of metaphoric teaching, I think it's the heart of Buddhist teaching, 
is that we could be really kind. We could be gracious and kind and generous and moral, careful, thoughtful. When I walk up there and I see the names of those four buildings, you, you probably notice that they have names, and the names of the four buildings are the names of the Brahma Viharas, the four um, divine abodes, is the translation of Brahma Viharas. And they are friendliness, metta, compassion, karuna, mudita, sympathetic joy, being happy for other people's good fortune, and upeka, equanimity which really is a translation, I, I think, of wisdom, of being able to see this is the way things are, and seeing that, being able to respond with the most natural place in one's heart, which is the loving response. And thinking about uh, a lot, as you have in, in, in this last month, certainly in this last year, about what really is the context of the human heart. Sometimes it's shocking to see how far people might be from goodness and kindness. But I think goodness and kindness really is fundamentally where when we see clearly, really clearly, we need to be, we would be. There was an article in a copy of Science News just a couple of weeks ago, this issue of Science News, which comes to my house every week. And it's uh, um, not what you might call, it's not the religious faith uh, magazine, it's Science News. And it's an article about what some archaeologists in France have discovered. Uh, the headline is Neanderthals Show Ancient Signs of Caring. And it's... Um, an article that shows that they have uh, found a jaw of a Neanderthal from which they have deduced that the jaw is uh, somewhere between 169,000 years ago and 191,000 years ago, so it's a long time ago. But what they have deduced is that they took care of each other, and this is the way they figured it out. It was a, a, a jaw of an old person. They can tell from the shape of the jaw. And uh, it, they can also tell from the shape of the teeth in the jaw that the, this old person did not have teeth for a long time before it died. Some period of time elapsed between when it couldn't chew anymore and it actually died, how they figured it out. It was toothless for a while, and they can age the how long it was toothless before it was dead somehow. And what they can deduce is the, the fact that someone took care of it, that person, when they couldn't chew anymore. That somebody ground up the food for this person one way or another and fed this person, as we would a baby. You know, you see, well, they ground up food and fed babies, but ground up food and fed old people. So it's a long article about uh, the, the impulse to take care of even people who cannot be helpful to the community anymore. You take care of babies, you say, well, okay, it's part of the instinct of survival to take care of babies because you need them to take care of the community. But here we are taking care of old people, no longer going to uh, cause the community to grow, no more going to take care of the community 
probably not more going to be able to go out and work on behalf of the community, whether it's hunting or whatever. But somebody else ground up their food for them and took care of them. So the impulse to care, I think. I've been saving that to tell you about it because I like to think that, that the impulse to care somehow, not only for the survival of the species, just because we do, really predates us as any kind of modern human beings. And I think that in this particular week, is a good time to talk about discovering that or rediscovering that about ourselves, how much we like to experience ourselves as the caring people that we actually are. So this is Holy Week, and this is also the week of uh, Passover. So it's a week where uh, people are going to be talking about being renewed and restored to life and think a lot about the fact that I feel myself most restored to my true person that I am when I'm set free from um, being frightened or being confused or not being as kind as I could be. All the things that stand in the way from us being as generous or as loving as we could be. When I am set free from all of those traps, I am renewed into my life. You know, we talk a lot in, um, in uh, teaching Dharma about uh, rebirths in, from past lives or next lives. And I'm not completely sure about that understanding of lifetimes after or before this particular body. I don't know. I think that I am reborn, though, into suffering many times a day. Every time I get caught in a trap of annoyance or of a lust, a greed, an anger, an annoyance. And I think I am reborn into a new life every time I'm set free from that. You know? I think to myself, I, 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 actually, I used to feel somewhat maybe cavalier about saying I'm not worried about my rebirth into my next life. I actually am worried about my staying in this life alive and connected moment to moment and I am reborn every time I refine myself, refine my best self, get free. And we will talk also in this week of um, Pesach, this week of Passover, talk a lot about going out into freedom, being set free. You might be interested in knowing that the word for Egypt in um, Hebrew is Mitzrayim, and it literally is also the word for the narrow place, the place where you might get stuck. And I think about that all the time, about getting stuck in a self-serving need that gets in the way of my remembering who's out there and who else is having a life and who I might serve in a way that puts me in touch with my best self. So I think of this as the, the week of... Uh, seeing what gets, it keeps us held captive and the week of uh, putting ourselves in touch with seeing how free we can get. And I think it all has to do with paying attention to how we behave as human beings, how we are. So I had two stories that I wanted to tell you really today about my trip. While I'm gone, I think about you a lot. When something happens that I learn from a lot, I think, oh, I'll go home and 
tell this when I get home. So two weeks ago, I was teaching someplace for a weekend, uh, a couple of in a retreat center, a couple of hours north of New York City, and. Um, Actually, I'd gone directly there. I hadn't been in New York City. And this, this trip, this whole trip, was the first time I'd been to New York City since September 11th. And so I didn't stay. I got, went straight from the airport to the retreat center, and I was there for four days. And at the end of the four days, one of the people who was there at that retreat, who knew that I was going then back to New York City and was going to spend a week there, said, um, I work uh, in I, I work down near the where the World Trade Center was. In fact, I was working in the building right next to the World Trade Center on September 11th. She said I'd really like it very much uh, if you came down and I could show you what it looked like and what it looks like. And in in truth, I had planned not to go. I had thought about not going. I'd given it some thought, and it seemed like a thing that I could do, and people are doing it now. They they have some barricades set up. You can go downtown to Chamber Street on the on the on on the train, and there are certain streets that you can walk through, and they have kind of a little viewing um, platform that you can go on. But I had decided not to go. I I, I grew up in New York. But I left New York before the buildings were built. I've certainly been back in the last decades. But they weren't part of my childhood skyline. My childhood skyline was the Empire State Building. That kind of was in my mind. And I didn't work there. And I didn't know anybody directly who was there. And um, I didn't want to go as a tourist and just look at it. It, it It seemed gratuitous. I just... I have friends who um, are working still as chaplains for the Red Cross, meeting with people still, uh, who had people directly involved there. One of my friends who does that told me a story last week of... um, goes once a week and spends a day at the Red Cross, uh, not exactly way down in the bottom of Manhattan, but in a place where it's been set up for services. And people come with every kind of need. And he said, people come who have not yet filled out a death certificate because they can't do it, or um, because somehow doing it would be too final. People come because they had a business that was two blocks away and now that there's so many less people working there, their business, their luncheonette business, or a sandwich business, or a shoeshine business. But I didn't want to go. I didn't feel, I, I didn't feel somehow that it was right for me to go. And here was this woman at this retreat, and at the end she said, I would like to take you. She said, I want you to come. She said, I'll, I'll send a car to get you wherever you are. Tell me when you are free. She said, because you're a person who tells stories, and I want you to tell people about it. And so I want to take you and tell you what I saw. So I felt like probably I was supposed to go and tell you what I saw. So I went. And several, several days hence, she 
sent somebody to get me. I was teaching all morning in a place on 76th Street, and I was going to be teaching in the evening. She said, I'll, so, someone will pick you up, and they did. And I met her way downtown, and at a certain point, you drive down the West Side Highway, and there's normal traffic and cars going and coming, and at a certain point, there's a police barricade, and all the cars turn. And to go past it, you have to say what your business is and who you're going to see. You have to show your identification, show your driver's license, say who you're meeting. So, and we drove past, and I met her. And again, since it's not part of my visual memory, you know, you don't quite get it two blocks away that when you look up in the sky, you formerly didn't see sky there. And so I met her, and she said, well, we'll walk over there first. She works for one of the commodities, the companies that uh, is uh, part of the commodities exchange. Uh, I said, that's an, a strange, uh, unusual job for a woman, isn't it? It's a very, she said, yeah, it is. She said, I like it. Uh, I've done this since I got out of college. She's a young woman. Uh, so we walked two blocks and she said, well, formally from here, you'd walk through here and you'd walk through here. You walk through a number of buildings, have to get all kinds of uh, identification, you get stopped, you show all your driver's license and uh, permission to get through. They take a picture of you, you get a photo ID for entering into the building. And I went into the building that she worked in, which was right across the street, uh, as far away as I am to you from the World Trade Center that fell down. So we went up to the 27th floor and went into the room that she had worked in. And um, it's really just as it was left six months ago. It was a big room, just kind of like what you see in the movies when they show you traders on commodities exchanges or stock exchanges, rows of desks with computers on them where it was full of people. And it looked just like it looked just like in the movies, except there were no people in it. And you could see that there had been people in it. There were coffee cups on the table where people left them, and uh, a thermos on somebody's table, and file cabinets open where someone had been looking up a file, and um, somebody's vest over the back of a chair, and somebody's jacket over the back of a chair. and. Um, potted plants that had died because no one's been there watering them. And she said, I've only been here one time since. We got brought back once to go in and get anything that was valuable in the desk, and then everybody out. And so she said, uh, I was right at my desk here, and uh, there was this tremendously loud noise. Again, uh, just from where I am to where you are, Linda, just across the street. She said, no, the window was closer. The window was not, not that far, maybe Lynn. She said, we got up from our desks, we ran to the window, we looked up. The building was on fire. She said, this tremendous wall of fire rushed down the building. People said, um, we should leave. She said, my boss came in and said, leave. Everybody just stood up and left. And she said, uh, we just went down. We went, we went, walked down 27 flights of stairs. 
She told me this whole story, by the way, as we stood by the window. She said, this is the room, and then she said, I was here at this desk, and she said, come to the window. And this is the part that I really wanted to tell you about. We stood at the window for probably an hour, and she told me the story of how it had been that day. And it was from 27 floors up. It's very small. You can see what looks like um, cars and bulldozers and backhoes and derricks and scoopers and all of those um, machines that are working there. And they look like the matchbox toys, box toys. They look like the kinds of things that my grandsons have. They're very small. You can barely see them backing up forward and back and a lot of people. And she would say, well, do you see the firemen? And I'd say, well, you know, which ones are the firemen? So the firemen are the ones with the uh, black jackets with the yellow stripes. And then the ones with these kind of colors, they're that. And the ones with those kind of colors, they're that. You can see little people walking around. And she told me the whole story as we stood and we watched. So she told me about it. And, she said, and I, I had, first of all, the sense of... Uh, I really wanted to understand it in the best way that I could tell it to you so it would be useful to you. For the same reason that I didn't want to go if it wasn't going to be useful. Since I was there, I wanted it to be useful. So I really listened. And one of the things that I felt all the while is that we could do it from tw- I could do it from 27 floors up. And see it happening down here. And I was thinking as she was telling me how important it is when something is so enormous, to tell it over very carefully to somebody else. When something is ungrockable. She said, you know, the worst thing about this all the while is I can't make my mind understand how somebody might want to do this purposely. I can't understand, I can understand it even theoretically or philosophically or politically. I can't actually get someone doing it. That's the piece that I can't understand. I can understand having a tremendous ideological difference, but doing it. So she said, they looked up, and this fire came down the building. And uh, everybody said, uh, let's go. She said, my boss came out of the office down at the end and said, leave. She said, we went down 27 flights of stairs. And the doorway that we came out, we hadn't realized because we'd always come up in the elevator, but the doorway that we came out was the doorway onto the side of the building where the World Trade Center was across the street. So it was going to fall down very soon after that, but they didn't know that. But this is a terrible part to tell, except that a piece of it is important. Otherwise, I wouldn't tell it to you. She said that fire that had come down the building had caused an explosion on the bottom. and People had been thrown out of the building and very burned. She said, my boss uh, took my arm and said, I'm holding on to you. Don't look. No one should ever see a thing like this. Uh, Just hold on to me and I'll take you. Don't look at this. Uh, They went down the street and around the corner and just kept walking and somehow started to walk up along the river and found a taxi cab that was able to take them. 
So they drove uptown. The taxi driver was listening to it on the radio and knew when the buildings collapsed and they could turn around and see it out the rear view of the car. It took a long time for her to tell the story. Then she told about the fact that uh, they went home, the people in the taxi, to one person's house. She said nobody could go home by themselves. And then very next, and called their parents, of course, the young people called their parents. She said the next morning at um, 4 o'clock or 4.30, they reconvened and uh, went to open their office in uh, makeshift offices that other people had offered them in the same building. He said, one of the things we did was uh, we called the competitor company in, uh, that had been housed in the World Trade Center across the street. We called our chief competitors. N not everybody had been in the building. And uh, of course, the building was destroyed. And we said, uh, we'll do your work for you. you know, what can we do for you? She said, it becomes so clear in those moments that there are no competitors. That, you know, that the day before, she said, we could play the game of competitors and uh, who could outsell who. She said, but when that happens, there are no competitors. They're just us. We called them and said, come, we'll do, you know, we'll use us. We'll work together. He said, by and by, you know, of course, we come back into the world of you and me and getting and selling and competitors and our team and your team. He said, everybody shared. Probably that was the piece that I really wanted to remember the most of all of it. No, it isn't. It was a piece that I want to remember. There's another piece that's more important. It's a very hard piece to tell, but I want to see if I can do it right. I watched all these, as she was telling me the story, we stood there a long time, told me the story. And all these little cars are uh, shoveling and clearing and, uh, you know, from how high up we were, there was a one wall of a piece of a foundation that hadn't uh, collapsed completely. And it had a big circle in it. And I thought it was a sewer line. You know, it was just a big circle in a foundation. And someone told me afterwards, it was a subway. I was so high up that it looked to me like a sewer pipe, but I was so high up, it was actually big enough to be, the subway ran through there. But here's all these little trucks backing up forward and back and backing up forward and back. and. My friend, who was explaining the scene to me and telling me her experience, said, uh, you see that this one pushes here and that one pushes there. And you see them chopping up. Somebody scoops up the biggest pieces of what's left and brings it to somebody else. And then it's crushed. And then it's moved someplace else. And then it moves someplace else. And then there were a couple of trucks that were scooping up and bringing it to an already cleared off area. And you know how derricks or whatever the derricks I think pick up, and take a big scoopful and bring it over here and spread it out on this cleared-off area, and then there are people with some sorts of sticks or brooms or something 
But the last stage of the breaking up of this building is people sifting through it. And she said they're looking for what's ever left. And every once in a while, they find a wedding ring or they find some artifact of somebody that is identifiable. And then they will do that until they have finished with every bit of debris from this whole thing. There's an article in the paper the other day about um, a man who uh, was just identified, whose remains were just identified. Uh, He didn't work in the World Trade Center, didn't have an appointment in the World Trade Center, Uh, He disappeared on September 11th. 23-year-old Muhammad Salman Hamdani, who died there apparently, he was identified. Just, this is the New York Times of Monday of, Monday of, day before yesterday. Yet another confirmed death, the awful doing of terrorists, but the story of the 23-year-old Salman, as his family called him, was unlike those of most of the people missing. A mystery surrounded his disappearance. He didn't work at the World Trade Center. He had no appointment there. He did not show up at work, and he never came home. When there are questions, there are often rumors, which there were about Mr. Hamdani, scurrilous whispers that he was either connected to the terrorists or hiding out, scheming to profit from the tragedy. Ludicrous, said everyone who knew Mr. Hamdani. Now there are no more questions. He was not perpetrating a fraud, as implied in the New York Post article about which the Hamdanis remained bitter. He was missing because he was killed. As his family originally assumed, Mr. Hamdani, a June graduate of Queens College, clearly went downtown to help. He had been a part-time ambulance driver, an emergency worker to help pay his, and an emergency worker to help pay his tuition. And he was also a police cadet for a while. Mr. Hamdani, who wanted to be a doctor, must have seen the destruction. And instead of going to his job as a research assistant at Rockefeller University, headed south. He gave his life for humanity, said his mother, Talat Hamdani, a teacher at a middle school in Queens. He did not know a single soul down there. He didn't have to go there, but he was a son of New York City. Mrs. Hamdani immigrated to America from Pakistan 22 years ago. She had hoped when her son disappeared that perhaps he was one of those people who was just randomly arrested because he was Muslim. A month after the attack, flyers circulated saying that Mr. Hamdani was wanted for questioning by a joint terrorism task force of the FBI and the police. His former professors were asked about his lab work and character. Newspaper articles appeared, including one in the Post with its accusatory headlines and anonymous quotations. Turns out the flyer was unofficial, unauthorized. He was cleared completely of complicity in the attack. But it is hard to separate what happened from the fact of Mr. Hamdani's religion. Everyone is suspicious in wartime.
it's a very bad thing when those kinds of suspicions happen because of someone's religious. So now his family is going to have a funeral. They haven't had one yet. They don't know what day, but it'll be a Friday, and it will include the recitation of the ritual Muslim prayer for the dead at the city's main mosque. So it's really important that they go through all those remains and look at it. It's important for Mr. Hamdani's family. But really, it's more important, I think, even for the families of the people who they don't find their wedding rings, to know that they were careful with them. It's like the people who made, whoever it was who made the shrine for the salamander this morning. There's a way of hallowing life by noticing its passing and, and really caring enough to say this matters to us, that we won't do anything here at all until we've really carefully gone through it all because it's a, it's a place where there were people. You know what's really one of the things that struck me so much? How many people there were, and it's not that big of a space, you know, you look down from the 27th floor, you could see all of it. It's very just a very, very big square city block. Uh, and I said that to uh, the woman who brought me there. I said, it doesn't look like such a big space after all. And she said, yes, but it was very high. Mm-hmm. It's really a mountain full of people. Many of them, very young. All kinds of people. All kinds of ages and shapes and colors and sizes and from all kinds of countries. Some of them pregnant. So after we finished looking at them being so careful and looking through all that, sifting through all that's left over, she said, now I'll show you where I work. And we walked two buildings back over to the uh, commodities exchange. And she said, someone has promised, one of my colleagues has promised to take us up on the floor, the trading floor. So do you know how it is in the movies when people are on the trading floor to see Eddie Murphy trading places. Remember that? <laughs> it's just like that, only maybe more uh, intense. We had to get more badges and more IDs and get through more checkpoints and get inspected again going through, which is fine. It's, there's no problem about that. So we go in, and she calls up, and her friend comes down and gets her and comes down, and he's wearing one of those jackets. You know how you do on the trading floors where you see whose team is who? Because now there are competitors again. For a while there weren't. Now they have the blue jackets and the yellow jackets and the red jackets and the competing teams. And he comes down and he says, okay, I'm glad you got here because the exchange closes at 2.30 and it's now 2.20. You rush up and you go in. You can hear it as you're coming down the hall. And we've just spent the better part of an hour in this absolutely hushed shrine of an empty building. And down the hall, you can hear what's going on there. And it's really carrying on down the hall, hollering, 
and you come in, and seriously, uh, there are pits, just uh, the trading pits, but not one. There are the crude oil pit and the and the uh, metals pit and the well, who knows citrus. I don't know if they do citrus futures there. I think it's the more the oil and the natural gas and metals, and so the traders in each of these things are in their pits. Mostly men, a couple of women. But uh, one, I, I said to my uh, my friend who had taken me there, I said, this definitely is a man's game. She said, well, yeah, it's a man's game. But, you know, look around, and I was happy to see all colors of men's games. So that was one or two women, but not a lot. Um, but it's a very hollering game, you know, and uh, <laughs> very close quarters and uh, very loud. And in each of these pits, impossibly, people are trading. I have no idea how they hear each other, because it's a din. And they're gesturing and hollering. And, and the big clock on the wall, digital clock now, is you know, by the seconds counting down. And then a, a, a bell rings at um, 2.2800. And the din escalates. You know, it's like, it's like the two-minute warning bell on the end of a football game. People are hollering and waving and carrying on. 60, 68.10, 68.20, 68.10, 68.20. And they know what each other is saying. It's amazing. <laughs> and then at 2.30, the bell rings, and everybody stops. The game is over for today. It's so clearly a game. But uh, so two things I learned there. First of all, uh, she had said to me on the way over, she said, you know, one of the things I think about, she said, is I can't get my mind around what the fever in the mind of a person who could do a thing like this would be, she said. But one of the things I think about is if it were ideological, if it were really an attack on uh, the free enterprise system, they didn't win. And you go over and you see the trading that's happening at an amazing scale, this, this it, it, whatever we think about capitalism or free enterprise or if it's really free or all of the the sub-ideological categories that we can have. The spirit of human beings to resume the game is enormous. That kind of energy is enormous. And in fact, I had a view of mine changed. Um, and this might be wrong or right, and people here are probably going to know economics better than I do. But uh, I, I think I had corrected, I hope in the right direction, a view that I have about uh, economics and the system and how it works. But I think I've been very much shaped by the idea of, uh, well, first of all, the, the, the noble idea that people could just share. We don't have to compete with stuff and buy it and sell it. Why don't we just all feed each other? That would be a really nice thing to do. So I'm, I have a, a, a philosophical or an ideological or a, a religious sentiment about the whole world to just stop and take care of each other and feed each other. That's a nice idea, but it's not happening so far. There's something about human beings that causes them to compete and try to see who can amass the biggest pile of stuff. And maybe in some way we're going to have to work with that. Emery Lovins, who's done wonderful writing and thinking about how will we, given our acquisitional and creative nature, really channel that possibility, that capacity we have 
to build a better mousetrap and think of a better way to do something, how will we channel that into making it a better world for other people? If it has to come through that, let's use it. So I'm very much interested in, in, in what he's writing about and talking about these days. But I'm also very much shaped by the uh, uh, very um, mm, by the the fact that I had um, uh, grandparents who worked in uh, the garment industry in New York and where uh, labor was the good guys and the bosses were the bad guys and uh, so I really thought about so I came here I come to this uh, tremendous scene. And I'm thinking of Wordsworth, the line from Wordsworth that says, uh, getting and spending, we lay waste our days. I think about, these are what people do every day. They come to work, and they holler and carry on, and uh, then at the end of the day, they go home. Um, and then they come back the next day, and getting and spending. And is that really laying waste their days? Anyway, here's my uh, host for the day who's invited me down who trades commodities. It's, and uh, I met her, in fact, on a religious retreat. I, uh, so Already I have to be thinking there's a way that I'm not seeing quite clearly. Here's a person with very caring, genuine religious sentiment. And I said, how does this work? And she said, well, there are three things that have to happen. She actually works in metals, in copper, I think. And she said, there are the people who mine the copper, Here's where you may correct me on the economics. So there are people who make the copper, and then there are the people who need the copper to make uh, wiring for electricity and uh, make pots and make all the things that you make out of copper. And so these folks over here have to buy it from these folks over here who find it and mine it and said, in the middle. And really, she said, this is where the bulk of the trading happens is where there are speculators, and they actually don't get the stuff, nor do they use the stuff. They bet, in essence, on the availability of the stuff. So they are, in fact, what's in the middle of the market, because they, she said, by buying it and then selling it to the people who use it, are absorbing the risk. So they, they, they are the speculators, they're in the middle. And um, she said that they set up uh, they're, they are neither in copper or using copper but or any of these other things, but using a certain wit to uh, manipulate, buy and sell and sell and buy. said, in fact, they're what gives the market depth. She said, if it, was, if it weren't for... I said, you mean they're just gambling? These are just the gamblers. They're not the users or the finders. Or, like gambling is a bad thing. And then in other contexts, I might think of it really as an addiction and a difficulty, but it was very interesting for me. She said, you know, it's because there are these folks in the middle that that the folks who find it don't hold the other folks hostage, that they, that in fact it makes a depth to the market where the commodity is available to the folks who need to use it in a way that keeps the system competitive. I hadn't thought about that before. And, you know, I don't know enough about economics to tell you that that's exactly the whole story or that it's not getting and spending, we lay waste our days. Or that at least it gave me enough to think about, to think about the fact that views that I have had for my whole life are views I've had for my whole life, and they're child views, and that they're always up for revisiting. And maybe I could get a little smarter about that. 
Maybe I can get smarter about other things as well. But one of the things that I wanted to end up talking about is finding myself or asking you to examine how you find yourself trapped in habitual views. And it's those kinds of habitual views that I get trapped in that stand between me and really my kindest self. Um, like, for instance, when I came in and saw those people hollering and carrying on, and maybe I conveyed that to you because I actually wanted to be a little bit light about it, having told you the story of looking at the former World Trade Center site. Maybe I was a little jaundiced in my view of these folks and their trading. And the truth is, they're people, and it's a line of work, and they go home, and actually they have a higher incidence, I asked. They have a higher incidence of stress-related diseases. They do. You know, like um, air traffic controllers. You know, amongst air traffic controllers, do you know that, one somebody told me, uh, the uh, palladium of air traffic controllers is uh, Chicago O'Hare. That, that seems to be the highest stress at least my that particular source of information said uh, you really know you've made it as an air traffic controller when you're working at Chicago O'Hare. So they also have the highest incidence of stress-related disease because it's really hard. These people trading away the the aluminum that maybe are keeping the price of commodities in a way that works for the world, they have a high stress job. That my heart should not close to anybody is the freedom that I would like to establish for myself. That is the narrow place I'd like to go out of. That is the Egypt that I would like not to get stuck in. That is the new life that I would like to be reborn into. And now I'll tell you a story about how I got trapped and how I got out. Wouldn't be a good story if I didn't get out. Uh, <laughs> And it will end up with uh, the basket for the homeless in uh, Marin County, far away. One of the jobs I did while I was in New York is I'm a consultant to the uh, Jewish Community Center in Manhattan. It's a great association. It's marvelous. If you go to New York, go and visit it. They have built, just finished building, actually the builders are still in the building working and it's up and running. Beautiful big building on the corner of uh, 76th and Amsterdam Avenue. And it's like the JCC in Marin County. It has a pool. Of course, here it's all on maybe two levels, but there it's eight-story building. The pool is like on the fourth floor. It's amazing to see a pool on a fourth floor, an Olympic pool. It's like a, it's a mistake about an Olympic pool. Anyway, it's got an Olympic pool. It's got a huge gym. It's got a uh, nursery school with 150 three- and four-year-olds going to nursery school. It has prenatal classes and postnatal classes and bereavement groups and... Uh, reading groups, and all the things that are in every kind of a Jewish community center, all kinds of uh, non-specifically religious activities, but act community activities. And it certainly is not limited to Jews, because anybody can go, and any, just as the Marin County JCC is. 
And it's just up and running, and it's wonderful, and its programs are wonderful, and its teachers are wonderful. And uh, I feel very proud of myself that I got to be the consultant to the, um, the whole floor of this community center that is the Center for Contemplative Practice. And it's really unique amongst JCCs, which have always had gyms and all those other classes wonderfully well. But now they have a whole floor for contemplative practice. And they have the most beautiful jewel of a meditation room that uh, I saw for the first time last week. I saw it in the plans two years ago. Three years ago, as part of the planning. I certainly helped them design the program for it. So now, in addition to all these other activities going up, people swimming, little kids drawing, people cooking, people doing photography, people doing ceramics, people painting, people doing everything. There are people meditating just like this on the seventh floor. It's lovely. So it has a room for contemplative studying where we'll have a library in silence. And next to it, this other beautiful little jewel of a meditation room in an oval shape. Walk in and it's got 14 chairs in an oval shape. 14 Zabutans, 14 Zafus, little window looking out. So that the room has kind of a uh, an ivory colored glow. No, no um, big windows. Little window, recessed window, with a beautiful um, bamboo plant in it. And I taught there last Monday, week ago Monday. And it was my first time in the, in the building, so I knew about it from its inception a couple of years ago in the planning. I was thrilled to be there. It was just wonderful to see how it actually came out, lovely. And, I was, and the class that I was teaching for that day had filled. It was every, all the Zafus were not that big of a class. I was teaching with a friend of mine. We, we came there. People came. It was beautiful. I spent the whole morning people eager to uh, incorporate contemplative practice into their lives. It's lovely. People eager to do silence got it while we were teaching. It's a wonderful morning, a great morning. feel in the most expansive of moods, so happy, so pleased to see this happening. Got to be lunchtime. See, the real story hasn't started to unfold yet. <laughs> got to be lunchtime, and uh, the person who's the program director there had known that we had planned a whole day of retreat. So the cafe downstairs had prepared a luncheon that was being brought up for these folks on the retreat. And the luncheon was going to be served in the next room next door, which will be the library. Now it's just a big room. The books aren't there yet, but big room with uh, tables and chairs, such as you might have in the library. And a wall of windows looking out across the street into the, it was actually raining. It was a gray day in New York, last day of winter, but it was raining. And uh, so we, we did the uh, exercise that we often do on retreats of eating a raisin. And uh, how many people here have done the raisin exercise? Okay, it's enough to, so you know, if you eat a raisin and you really look at it and smell it and think about it and where did it come from and its source and the soil and the, air and the rain and the sun and everything comes back to the same source. So you really, by the time you put the raisin, put the raisin on your tongue and you don't bite it and you can feel salivary glands all working and you feel 
wonderful to be alive, and then you finally take a bite of the raisin, it's such a great taste. We do that whole thing. <laughs> it's wonderful. And then we go into the next room where, in fact, uh, the program director has already made the organization, so folks have come up and laid out on the side, on the, on the counter, baskets of beautiful sandwiches, those rolled up wrap sandwiches, all beautiful, each of them a work of art, portobello mushroom, egg salad, tofu, just really beautiful apples, bowl of apples, bowl of pears, bowl of cookies, urn of coffee, jug of apple juice, everything lovely. We walk in, all 14 of us, 15. People understand they're going to keep silence. They go in, they help themselves. They sit down, not with each other, they sit down. Everybody just thought to sit down looking out the window. We're sitting and looking out. I also am sitting and have my portobello mushroom sandwich and looking out and I'm feeling so expansive. Just wonderful. All of a sudden floats into my awareness a loud voice that says, Three spades beats three hearts. <laughs> I think to myself, that's a funny thing. That's not a spiritual comment. This is the, the flaw for spiritual contemplative practice. And another voice says, he's right. Uh, spades is higher than hearts. It goes clubs, diamonds, hearts, spades. You guys are what is this? It's coming from the room over here. I guess. So I stand up. And I walk over to the window where the wall comes, and I see that whoever designed this beautiful, amazing, fantastic, wonderful building has made a design where the inside wall doesn't quite meet the outside wall. <laughs> so what's going on in this next room is floating in. I, you know, and it's, a, it's a, probably an amazing design, because I couldn't figure out how the building stays up if the walls are not attached to the walls. But, but somehow or another, the, the, there's no silent space. What's happening in here wafts around, kind of like an Eichler home, you know, it just goes over the, <laughs> over the top. So here are these folks, and I peer around. You can kind of get a, just a glimpse and from hearing the voices. This is an older folks, of which I am certainly in the category, but it's an older folks bridge club or class that's happening in there. So first I think to myself, who designed this building? Right away, I've been expansive, wonderful, beautiful. <laughs> in one second, I'm having a non-charitable thought, who designed this building? Then I'm thinking, who designed this program? Why did they program in a bridge club just when we we're having this contemplative day here? So I think to myself, <laughs> I sit back down with my sandwich, looking out the window, I'm churning up a few thoughts, not so charitable. And behind me, I hear some sounds that, I, you know, I can see all the folks in the retreat over here. I hear some sounds over here. I turn around, I see people that I don't know, that I don't recognize from the morning's retreat, now helping themselves to the food. <laughs> so, I figure they are folks from the bridge class that have now gone out, they've gone to the toilet, they've passed by back these glass doors, they looked in, there's food, there are people eating, they're hungry, it's lunchtime, they came in, helping themselves to the food. So I think to myself, what should I do? There's a lot of folks playing with So I step over to my friend, who's the program director, also eating her sandwich, and I say, I've a little problem here. 
So she gets up, says whatever she says to these people, quietly, discreetly, I'm sure nicely. They leave. I'm sitting. And I'm sitting, and I'm looking out, and it's raining. And you get take a few breaths, and you come back to yourself. You take a few breaths, you look out, you calm yourself down. The mind, when it gets startled or frightened or challenged in some way, closes in on itself, and it becomes nonsense. It becomes like a child's mind. It takes care of itself. It does not think clearly. I thought, as I'm thinking to myself as I'm sitting there, what on earth happened? First of all, I was thinking to myself, those folks over there are disturbing my people over here with their loud talk. I think to myself, when did these people get to be my people? I know them. I know them two hours longer than I know these people. If I had started in with those people, they would be my people. These would be my people. So where did I get that? Then I realized it's actually not my people that I'm worrying about. It's my reputation that I'm worrying about. Because I was wanting people to go away and say, oh, I had such a wonderful day with Sylvia Borstein. Can you believe it? It's myself, actually, that I'm probably protecting, not even them. So I'm a little chagrined. Then I think to myself, and what is this business that the mind says they're taking my food, since or our food? Suppose someone came in and said, you know, uh, there's an um, Afghani family in a cave uh, in uh, northern Afghanistan now that's hungry. Would you share your lunch with them? Of course I would. There's a baby in uh, Peru that is hungry. Would you share your lunch? Of course. There's a pregnant homeless woman in, La in St. Louis. Would you share your lunch with her? Of course. There's a homeless person outside on Amsterdam Avenue. Would you share your lunch? Of course. And so would you. So would any of us share the lunch. Why would I not share my lunch with these folks playing bridge next door? <laughs> you know, here is food. There are hungry people. It is lunchtime. What is the matter, Sylvia? Not only share the lunch, but give them the whole lunch. I had breakfast. I'll have dinner. I am among the very, very few people in the world, so are you, who probably has never in their lives worried about whether or not there will be something to eat for dinner. We probably never, any of us, have been down to our last money and our last meal. Mm -hmm. To think, we would immediately share, all of us, without a moment we would share, because that's how we are when we were in our right mind. And really, it's so hard to stay there. Whatever, the best of intentions, the best of the best of experiences of knowing that that's the only time they actually feel good is when we're in our right mind. But we're in such a hurry to rectify every error that we make. We don't feel good when we don't do the right thing. This is um, the kind of mind we'd like to live in. I come back to talking about Brahma Viharas. The, a vihara is a, a, a home, a house, a place to live. And a brahma, um, brahma is the word that's used for a godly or a heavenly. So brahma viharas, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, friendliness, compassion, loving kind, uh, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. We call the brahma viharas because it's uh, the, really the best place to live. And the news is that we don't have to go any place to get there. We already live there. It is what we were born with. It is the context of the human heart. When we aren't frightened or
confused or overwhelmed or startled. That's where we live and that's how we behave. So that's the wish that I have for me and for you and for all of us in the whole world that we should realize that we are already at home, all of us, wherever we are. And uh, in the best possible kind of a world, we'd invite everybody in and feed them. We could sit for a minute. Maybe we could make between us the wish that uh, all over the world, every place where there is conflict, every place where someone looks like an enemy or a competitor or a challenger of any kind, that the whole world tomorrow would wake up and see that whoever they're looking at is a person just like them. Wishing that they were comfortable, wishing that their family were safe, wishing that their family had enough to eat, was warm enough, that their shelter was good enough. We could also wake up realizing that the earth has enough resources to feed everyone and shelter them and take care of them. And just really that everybody's a little bit lost. We've all forgotten how to go home. We go home to our own hearts and find that that's where we are happiest. We'd all become the wonderful sharers that we're actually meant to be. And the world could be reborn new. In this season of rebirth and renewal, may that come to pass. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm so happy to see you all. Mm -hmm.